0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside Podcast. My name is Dennis and today Kevin and I are joined by Barry Whitehill, Hal Herring, and Fran Maurer. We talk about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the ins and outs, and a little bit of history over the last 40 or 50 years with a couple of guys who have spent a majority of their careers working in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I will let them Introduce themselves in just a second, and I thank you for listening to our podcast. So, without further ado, the legends.
1: Yeah, this is kind of like the Legends podcast, I think. I mean, Angie swears that there's six degrees of Barry Whitehill that everyone knows him very closely uh, at some point, right? Or they know someone who knows Barry. Um, Kind of probably a little bit of a a legend in the Arctic and all that stuff. Um, I know the trip that uh, I did up there just riding in the car barry's like oh i took this river three weeks down to these talk to these elders and hal and i did a trip up there at the same time and like the next morning barry was planning another trip flying in somewhere and then of course we have hal herring um, i would think um, as far as noted journalist conservationist author um, he's fairly well known in these circles and then fran hour and then Dennis and myself. So let's let everyone get a little bit of uh, background here. Um, let's go just kind of clockwise. Barry, how are you doing?
2: Good. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Um, so uh, <laughs> I grew up in eastern Washington, uh, but I was one of those kids uh, since a teenager, I had a premonition that I was going to die in Alaska. So uh i knew it was inevitable and uh my uh former wife who died of brain cancer sadly was a biologist for fish and wildlife and at the time we lived in northern nevada which she hated the brown and uh, she came home one day said i'm applying for a job in alaska so if i get it i'm moving taking the kids you can come up when you're ready so uh that just cast uh it wasn't my my doing but uh so moved up and that was 28 years ago and uh yeah it's it's been a good fit great place to raise kids uh you know i know my two boys one lives in brighton utah and one lives in in uh missoula and uh i know growing up they took it for granted but uh you know being outdoors, hunting. I packed the oldest one at three months while his, mo- his mother killed a nice bull elk. So uh, the die was cast, whether they liked it or not, and uh, they're still following in those footsteps. And then my career was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I got paid to play by doing a lot of the rivers. I started out uh, in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, helping out with geer Falcon surveys. Um, so I got to float rivers like the Congacut Cut and the Canning, but uh, I was primarily first at Canute National Wildlife Refuge uh, near Bettles, Alaska, and Alakaket, and then transitioned over to Yukon Flats, which is small in comparison to Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but still almost 12 million, million acres with several villages associated with it. So. Um, that's where I ended my career at Yukon Flats National Wildlife Refuge. And I live in Fairbanks, Alaska.
1: So. Awesome. Hal?
3: Um, what do you say? Um I'd like to take more trips in the Arctic. Uh <laughs> um, I'm from I'm originally from North Alabama. Um, I grew up there. I lived there until I was about 25 and um we had uh we did timber some timber stuff i was a tree planter for warehouser paper company it was really one of my first uh like real jobs so we we had a ho dad crew down in mississippi and alabama north florida um that was really kind of a weird thing i picked up the ho dad which is a tree planting tool when i
1: i think we lost hal so let's move on to friend hal him, <laughs> someone shot hal <laughs>
4: Yeah, this is Fran. Uh, I live here in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, Grew up in west central Minnesota. Uh, When I was quite young, uh, my father, who was farming at the time, uh, showed me some native artifacts that he found in the fields, uh, stone hammerheads and arrowheads and things like that. And uh, he explained to me that, um, you know, the uh, Great Plains was, used to be vastly different than it was when I was a child. The, the big bison herds and Native American, many different tribes of Native Americans uh, out on the land uh, pursuing the bison. And I always held in my mind the idea of what that must have been like before Europeans set foot in the Great Plains, in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, that became kind of a deep feeling inside me. Uh, I graduated from high school, uh, got a degree in wildlife at uh, South Dakota State University, put in two years during the Vietnam era in the U.S. Army, Uh, got out and uh, came to Fairbanks, Alaska to attend graduate school. I ultimately got a degree in zoology and was fortunate to land a job with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service shortly afterwards, Uh, and uh, soon I was involved with planning for proposed national parks, wildlife refuges, wilderness areas, wild scenic rivers uh, prior to passage of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act and it was a pretty exciting time. I feel like it was the highlight of my career at the very beginning, and the rest was all downhill after that. But uh, the uh, law was finally passed in late 1980 that created over 100 million acres of protected lands in Alaska. When that was over, I uh, transferred as a wildlife biologist to the Arctic Refuge in 1981. Worked there for 21 years as a wildlife biologist, uh, studying mostly caribou and the calving grounds. Uh, Moose, doll sheep, birds of prey were the main uh, items I got involved with. These were mostly associated with uh, assessment of fish and wildlife and their habitats on the coastal plain of the refuge that was required. Act of Congress in the Alaska Lands Act Um, and and I've been involved with the controversy over drilling in the Arctic Refuge uh, since that time and within just about uh, five months from now I'll be I'll
2: I'll have uh, lived in in Alaska for 50 years I got a lot of living to do to catch up with you. <laughs> well, no keep at
4: it. Keep at it. That's all I got to say.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. Back to Hal, real quick.
3: Yeah. I'll uh, I'll make it brief. Um, so uh, I came back to uh, I came to Montana oh probably 28, 30 years ago. And um, although I worked in the woods here and did a lot of stuff, I, I became kind of an environmental journalist. I'm a contributing editor at Field and Stream. I cover conservation for them. I'm working on a book on American public lands right now. Uh, I wrote a book on historic firearms, which gave me a bunch of history um, for a while. So I'm a, I'm a writer, reporter. Um, I still do some woods work every year uh, with the Bureau of Land Management and the Mule Deer Foundation planting sagebrush. But, uh, um, as Kevin and I did that trip with Barry, we, we saw some big country up there and I've, I've just touched the edge of it. Um, just touched the edge of that fire, man. I'd like to see a lot more.
1: Ditto. I agree.
3: As, as, far as, as far as this, like the film, we did a film this year where we, we were in Fort Yukon with the Gwich'in and, um, they, that was one of the great trips of my life. This was just last summer. Um, And they talked they talked to me about the importance of the Coastal Plain and in their culture and their their lives and um, I I couldn't have been more kind of blown away By that experience and, and what I learned in Fort Yukon amongst those folks
1: So so that leads us into obviously we're here to talk about the refuge, right? um there's a lot of passion for the refuge. Barry, has, Barry is very passionate about the refuge. Um, he took Hal and I on a trip. That's really kind of where Hal and I um, forged our friendship. I thought it was absolutely fantastic area. Seeing doll sheep, seeing a musk ox, um, stuff like that. Um, what about the drilling on the coastal plain? I mean, obviously you drive up the Hall road, there's the whole, all the oil stuff that you see, um, going down it already. Right. So why, why would you, or why would you not, why would you be opposed to the drilling or why would you be for it?
2: Fran, why don't you go ahead and uh, you're intimately involved with that 1002 area. Sure. Well, uh,
4: First, a uh, little bit of history on how the the original Arctic National Wildlife Range got established. It was finally established uh, during the Eisenhower administration in 1960, but there was a campaign to uh, designate or to set up and establish one, at least one conservation area in America's Arctic region. That started in the early 1950s uh, with the uh, folks such as Olas and Marty Murray, George Collins Paul Sumner, two National Park Service people. Murray had worked with the US Fish and Wildlife Service and had retired in the mid-1940s. Um, and the idea was that there ought to be one place in America's Arctic that's set aside and protected in its original condition and safeguarded in its original condition uh, on into the future, and they managed to succeed in getting the, the National Wildlife, it was called the Arctic National Wildlife Range at that time, established for three purposes, for uh, wildlife, uh, wilderness, and recreational purposes. Um, thank goodness it got established before oil had been found at Bruto Bay because uh, if it had not been established before Prudhoe Bay, there probably wouldn't be an Arctic National Wildlife Refuge today. Uh, There's an interesting connection from a historic standpoint in that in 1943, President Roosevelt in the middle of World War II established a public land order called 80 public land order 82 which set aside and protected the entire northern part of alaska from homesteading mining mineral leasing uh to safeguard those lands up there for the possibility of uh and and for military purposes during the war that take Took all of that land out of uh, access to oil companies, and even the state of Alaska. When when Alaska became a state, uh, it would have prevented Alaska from uh, getting state lands under the Statehood Act on the North Slope. And a big part of the Alaska of the uh, Statehood Act uh, was delayed, uh, partly because of the question of whether or not Alaska had the economic resources to run a state government. And uh, so that land order was an obstacle to exploring and looking for oil on the north slope of Alaska. Uh, A compromise got struck uh, late in the Eisenhower administration that would set aside the Arctic National Wildlife Range but would lift the restrictions of Public Land Order 82, which then paved the way for the state of Alaska to ultimately select lands and obtain uh, ownership of the subsurface that held the largest oil field ever found in North America. And there's been uh, quite a bit of ex- uh, proliferation of oil field infrastructure since uh, since Prudhoe Bay was discovered. Um, in the beginning, 1968, there was just a couple of exploratory drill pads on the North Slope. But within 10 years, the infrastructure had spread over a distance of 20 miles from east to west. By 1989, it had expanded to 53 miles of infrastructure. By 1999, it was out to 98 miles of of roads, pipes, and facilities. And about that time, uh, satellite images uh, from outer space, you could see the lights at night uh on the planet uh, up there on along Alaska's arctic coastline by 2008 we had uh an east-west proliferation of infrastructure that stretched over 260 miles the only place left on the north slope of Alaska that is not in a category of land protection uh from oil development is the Arctic wildlife refuge. It's the last bit of our Arctic tundra and coastal coastline that's not available, had not been available for oil protect, for oil development. Uh, and there's a protracted controversy during the Alaska Lands Act, and uh, for the last forty years, it's been controversial. As to whether the wildlife refuge should be open to oil drilling, and finally, uh, due to the uh, political makeup of Congress and uh, President Trump, uh, they were they were, the proponents for oil drilling in the refuge were successful in getting language in the 2017 tax cut act that would require Lease sales in the Arctic Refuge, and just a, couple, just a few days ago, it, the record of decision for uh, the, an environmental impact statement regarding opening the refuge to drilling was released by the Bureau of Land Management. So it's expected that there may be a, a um, oil lease sale before the end of this year. I think the, the the plan is to get the lease sale accomplished because that will make it much more difficult for a new administration, if there is a new administration, to uh, slow things down or work with Congress to change change the law and, and uh, uh, negate the oil lease sale. So the Arctic Refuge is in probably the most... Uh, Threatened, it's ever been in the last 50 years. So that's uh, in the nutshell. But but in addition uh, to it being, it is approximately 95% of the land on the North Slope is in categories of land ownership which does not require an act of Congress to allow uh, oil development. The only place that had been protected prior to 2017 was the Arctic Refuge. And uh, if you look at a topographic map of the Arctic Refuge, you'll see that the Brooks Mountain Range uh, arches up in the northeast corner of the state of Alaska and is at its closest, it comes to the closest proximity to the Arctic Ocean in that location Over to the west, uh, west of the refuge at Prudhoe Bay, the mountains are uh, about 110 miles from the Arctic coastline. In the Arctic refuge, the mountains come within as close as 15 miles to the Arctic coastline. And so what that, from an ecological standpoint, what that that landform with the mountains close to the Arctic coast, it compresses. uh, A great degree of of topography, vegetation patterns, weather patterns, wildlife habitat. It compresses all of these things right up next to the Arctic Ocean, and that's what leads to to gives that area its unique diversity, uh, especially for an Arctic region. To illustrate that what kind of connections you have in the Arctic Refuge that do not exist elsewhere across the North Slope of Alaska would be that uh, we have situations in the Arctic Refuge where we found polar bears denning at the base of the Brooks Range Mountains uh, with doll sheep looking down at their den site. You cannot find that kind of connection between species anywhere else in america's arctic or anywhere else in in the circumpolar region that's what makes the arctic refuge so special in addition the arctic we in uh, during the alaska lands act we were able to double the size of the arctic national wildlife range to 19 million acres it's one of the largest conservation areas in the country and uh It's the only one that stretches from salt water across an entire mountain range into the boreal forest on the south side. All the different habitats from the ice pack to uh, significant spruce and uh, birch forest are contained in this one protected area. it sets the Arctic Refuge stands alone in uh, its wildness and original condition. <clears throat> it's the wildest and, and most original of any landscape we have left in our country. Oh, that's uh, that's my spiel on it. And I'll, I'll stop talking for a while and let others uh, continue this discussion.
2: You, you know, um if you don't mind, maybe I can speak to kind of what uh, Fran touched on, on how he got into the interest of uh, growing up on the Great Plains. I was similar to that. My grandparents lived on the edge of the uh, confederated uh, Colville tribe. And in fact, that's <laughs> really dating myself. In 1974, I started working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And one of my first jobs was uh, to... Uh, do special use permits for the salish elders that came to turnbull national wildlife refuge each spring to dig camas and other roots and i befriended these elders they were in their 80s at the time and uh to the point that they shared stories of uh in one case uh the one uh woman nancy flett had married a much older man who was uh, participated in the last buffalo hunts where hal herring is but they would band together with the other salish groups because that is blackfoot country and the only way they can make it over and get buffalo and come back is to have a confederated bunch and so she told stories her husband sang her buffalo hunt songs and then the other nancy indeed her grandfather and another brave hiked with seven pairs of moccasins over probably two around where augusta is and snuck up on a Blackfoot encampment, uh, scalped the guy that was tending the horses. They each jumped a horse and grabbed a horse. So I grew up with those kind of stories as well, and that interest in that landscape. And and for me, when I'm like uh, 10 days ago, when I was on Arctic Refuge on a a, a eight day float, um, you know, that's the one place that I have been in life where you can get up on a hill and see out forever, which is similar, in my mind, to the grasslands around Augusta, that you can just see into infinity and without a a road, a trail, a a telephone line. And to me, that just, it brings home exactly the view, in my mind, what somebody like Lewis and Clark uh, would have seen looking out on the landscape. And it's the only place I know that's left where I can have that, that feeling embodied without being affected by the impact of man. And uh, for me, being on that landscape, it's you know, that's how my soul gets rejuvenated. And uh, to lose that for the sake of, uh, especially at these times with cheap oil, I think would be a tragedy for uh, not only me, but future generations that will never have a chance to have that feeling again. So that's my take on it.
3: I have a question on, on the cheap oil deal. Um I understand why now is because the now is the time is ripe to get these leases, right? But um what's the chance that these leases will end up being hostage leases like what we saw in the Badger 2 medicine? Where they say, well, we we have a right to drill. If you pay us, uh, perhaps we won't do it. Given the fact that the barrel price is in the tank, is that is that possible? Is that part of this?
4: Does anybody well, know? Well, I, I this is Fran. I I just comment that uh, if you look at the history of the oil oil. Uh, Industry in America—it's rich with chicanery and land speculation and uh, uh, dishonest. Uh,
3: we have uh, been center in that here where I live with the natural gas. Yeah,
4: yeah. and 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 uh, it's you know that's been unfortunately that's that's a that's there's a long-standing history of of behind. Behind the uh, not upfront and honest uh, dealing, in, in, in with regards to access to drilling and and uh, development and exploitation, and I wouldn't uh, count that out these days. Uh, it it's uh, it, it seems uh, seems like uh, such speculative activity would be consistent with the history of oil development in our country
2: uh, well,
4: from the very from the very beginning.
1: And once the lease is done, there is not the damage is mostly already set up at that point, unless you find a way out of it. Correct, or or is it just they could lease it and hold on to it for twenty years and not do anything?
4: Well, there's there's an interesting uh, uh, piece of history here in Alaska that that I think. Um, is is worth considering that is that uh, in in um, 1973 a democratic governor of Alaska led the legislature to or, or uh, granted uh, and had uh, leased leased lands in Kachemak Bay which is a beautiful bay in the south end of the Kenai Peninsula spectacular area rich in marine resources such as shellfish and salmon and leased it to the oil companies in 1973 this was a democratic governor who did that in 1974 we elected governor Jay Hammond a republican and this was before any oil money from Prudhoe Bay was flowing into the state's coffers. The pipeline had not been built yet. And Jay Hammond convinced the, the state legislature to come up with money, which was scarce in those days for the state of Alaska, and buy those leases back. And that's, that happened, that is history. Catchmack Bay is, is to this day a beautiful, popular recreation, uh, and fishing uh, and tourist place and there's no oil development in that area uh, now I would i would take that to the next step do the, do our political leaders following an election this fall would they have the inspiration to do what's right with the Arctic refuge if there is leases and come up with the, the financing to buy those leases back and save it but there is a precedent it has been done and it was done right here in alaska believe it or not
1: but obviously it's probably not like hey i paid 100 bucks for it i'll give you 105 back they probably fleece you it uh, uh on that buyback or or that would be my assumption
4: uh certainly yeah you, you know it I uh, I wouldn't argue with you about that, but I I guess in the case of the efforts to protect the Arctic Refuge from the very beginning, it's been based on very high ideals, and I think these days in our nation's history, we need to return to some high ideals instead of just uh, deciding well that. You know, that just can't happen. I think we need to aim high and not let go of our ideals. That's my point of view at any rate. Perhaps I'm biased because I've been very fortunate to work in wildlife biology up in the refuge for 21 years and see a lot of things that, unfortunately, many other citizens of our country have not had the opportunity to see. But I've often felt that if every citizen in our country could have seen and experienced some of the things that I've been fortunate enough to see there, there wouldn't be a dispute about what to do with the Arctic Refuge. There'd be a resounding
3: cry to keep this place as it is.
1: I would would agree wholeheartedly
3: kevin and barry you remember when uh my son was up there and we were picking those like it's like <laughs> i think uh, hal
1: might was... actually have worse internet than i do <laughs>
2: <laughs> well and and that uh i'm sorry to see him leave at this point because i was the question i wanted to ask hal because his son harold was 15 at the time we floated the the refuge on onto arctic national wildlife refuge and it'd be interesting to hear his perception uh of how that trip may have affected his son's path in life or his thoughts on things so hopefully hal will be back i know in in the case of my two boys um you know they took running the adigan gorge as you know, t- it took it for granted. But uh, now that they've moved out of Alaska to uh, the lesser 48, um, you know, they I think they have a perspective that uh, they really miss uh, being able to do those kind of things. But it set them on a good pathway in life. And uh, as soon as Hal, hey, Hal, um, yes, sir. while you were gone, I was bringing up the point. I was going to ask you. Uh, you know, Harold was only 15 at the time when we we floated the river. Right. did that did that change his perceptions on things or set the the cast uh, the you know the pathway for him to go one way or another or Will you tell me the you're... weather
3: was better in the Bob Marshall wilderness
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly. Um.
3: He's he's packing in the Sierra right now um, for Rock Creek Pack Station. He's been there all summer working. Um, so yeah, he's he's died in the wool, man. You know, uh, but what he was saying on that was he was picking those berries, and he just said, you know, the people who say this is an Arctic wasteland have never lived on the prairies where I grew up. <laughs> and What he was most impressed with on that trip was the bounty.
2: Yeah, and you have to look close like a lot of places out west. But once you get down and look uh, into, uh, you know, a close perspective, yeah, there's a lot there for sure. Well,
1: I remember from the last camp, we did a hike looking for caribou. We were out. Midnight, one in the morning, I think. It was still yeah. light out. And we were just eating blueberries off the ground as, as as we went. You know, it was, and the place was just so wild, so vast. It made you feel very insignificant, which is one of the things I love about big wilderness.
2: Yeah. Uh, um, I'll just, uh, you know, put this out there. But uh, on this last trip, uh, a couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, We hiked to a lake that I'd never hiked to before, and we sat above it. And all I can say is uh, Candace and Michael were ruined that they didn't bring a a fly rod with them because the rises on that lake were big rises. And something tells me there was some lake trout in there that hadn't seen a hook in generations. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot there, uh, even when the caribou aren't in. For sure
3: and even with the austerity there are those there's those big grayling in those eddies oh my gosh i mean i was i was just i I let we i think we kept one of them right but i was just letting them go but holy smokes were they in that and there's not much holding country in that river but where it is it's just full of fish
2: Though I must tell you, the elders would probably frown on you on catch and release because I'll uh, bet. <laughs> When, uh, like the Gwich'in, they have a saying, an animal offers itself to you, and uh, you don't play with your food. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> I, I
1: remember that uh, squirrel or whatever that offered itself to us uh, <laughs> yeah. when, we were, when we were loading up, and I did not know that Kyla is that that was her name, right? Yeah. yeah, that she clubbed it over the head with a caribou antler, and we <laughs> turned it into a meal at the next stop on the river.
3: And yeah. it was tasty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was good. It was really big.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so Fran, how how would opening up drilling affect caribou? And uh, I have a kind of a multi part question. From what I've heard that Central Arctic Herd, which is along the, the uh, Paul Road, they haven't been doing that well anyway. Last survey, their numbers were down quite a bit, correct?
4: Uh, yeah, there's, they've undergone a, a dip in their abundance uh, over the last six, seven years. Uh, and, you know, in general, caribou populations ebb and flow Uh, which is totally natural. And it's sometimes difficult to tease out what causes these ebbs and flows and and, uh, just exactly what influence humans have in the picture as well. Uh, It's complicated. But uh, some things we do know from long-term studies in the Prudhoe Bay area as the oil fields continued to expand, as I mentioned earlier, uh and there's been extensive studies of of uh, displacement of uh, pregnant females and females have just given birth with their calves They're, they uh, tend to be displaced away from uh, areas of human activity and and uh, noise and construction uh, oil field activities basically and the uh, the displacement extends beyond, usually extends beyond a couple of kilometers. Uh, and when you have a network of infrastructure, even though it doesn't occupy a huge acreage in aggregate, because it's spread out, you end up with uh, a large displacement of these uh, cows with their young calves. And we think that the reason that displacement takes place is an anti-predator reaction on the part of the adult females or mother caribou. In this open environment of the tundra, they, and they have a youngster that's that's still wobbly and and vulnerable, cannot uh, flee a predator yet, It's important for those cows to be vigilant, watching the horizon, and when they see movement off in the distance, they start to move their calf away from the trajectory of whatever uh, the the perception of a disturbance or a potential predator is. And so we believe it's it's related to an anti-predator strategy, and it results in displacement of these animals from their original calving grounds. And they go to these specific areas because uh, the plant, uh, the new plant life that's occurring at the time the calves are born is essential for the cow caribou to uh, get the high nutrients they need to produce rich milk for the young, which, by the way, has been tested and measured, and, and caribou milk is the richest milk known in the mammal world, in the land mammal world. It's, it's uh, right up there next to the milk that, that steels produce. And this allows the calves to grow rapidly so that they can avoid predators and can move with the rest of the herd as it moves across the landscape in response to mosquito harassment and warble fly harassment. And uh, to move uh, caribou, their whole strategy, major part of their their survival strategy is movement. They're They move almost constantly, except sometimes during the dead of winter, and uh, their strategy is to optimize advantages across a broad landscape. But if you interfere with the most sensitive time, where all the next generation of caribou are these uh, young calves, and they're born within uh, four or five days of, the entire herd pops out their calves at the same time. Uh, they're very vulnerable at that time. And if they're displaced to less favorable landscapes, uh, we expect there will be higher mortality of the calves. I was involved in, in studying ridge, uh, baseline mortality of calves on the calving grounds of the porcupine caribou herd, which is the big herd that calves in the Arctic Refuge. And we looked at uh, geographic locations of where calves were born and how well they survived during this uh, neonatal uh, time period. And uh, again, uh, to interpret what happens with the caribou herd over at Prudhoe Bay, remember I mentioned that over there the mountains are 100 to 110 miles from from the coastline. It's a broad uh, expanse of uh, coastal plain tundra. In the Arctic Refuge, this porcupine herd, which is more than five times as large as the Central Arctic herd, squeezes into a calving habitat that's only one-fifth as much as what's available for the Central Arctic herd. The Central Arctic herd is, again, about a fifth as big as the porcupine herd, but it has five times as much habitat to be displaced onto. So we don't see a severe impact on these calving animals in the Prudhoe Bay area, although they are displaced. Uh, But if you put an oil field in this narrow strip of coastal plain and the Arctic Refuge, where five times as many caribou come to calve, you can expect to have greater uh, mortality of young calves. And that translates ultimately into herd decline. And there's another basic principle that large caribou herds makes total sense. Large caribou herds occupy vast ranges Small caribou herds have smaller home ranges. So if you reduce the porcupine caribou herd in a significant manner, they're going to occupy a smaller range when the population is lower. And that's going to result, very likely result in, in uh, poor hunting success for the native peoples in Northwest Canada and Northeast Alaska to get the caribou they, they've been relying on for thousands of years. So uh, that's a thumbnail sketch of what could happen if there's, if there's uh, oil field development in the Arctic Refuge with regards to caribou.
1: So it would affect the porcupine potentially more than it would the central Arctic because it's a much smaller area that they calve in.
4: Yeah, that's that's a basic principle of of that's really the basis of the, of the uh, the differences between the two herds and and expected outcome if there's oil development in the Arctic refuge. It's based on those principles for the most part. Also, after the calves have grown a bit and they're able to escape predators more easily, they also still come under mosquito harassment, which gets very horrendous up there in uh, late June and on in well into July. And these caribou need to have of insect relief habitat that does exist uh, when conditions in the wind direction are are such that it's advantageous for caribou to move to the coastline where there's cool breezes and ice uh, they do so I've seen I've seen as many as uh, tens of thousands of caribou out on the relief from the mosquitoes. So if if they're blocked or unable to get there because of pipes and roads, uh, they're going to suffer uh, losses from uh, from just sheer mosquito harassment alone. And uh, some of the other habitats they move to is uh, mountain ridges to the south. And again, if they're impeded or Impacted in, in getting free access to those areas, uh, they can suffer. Uh, there's there's influences on on their survival in that regard. There's a third. It's complicated. The caribou have a variety of potential insect relief habitat, but if you throw a network of pipes and roads and human activity, there's going to be uh, further problems for them during the insect relief season. Uh, Eventually, they migrate off. Most of the porcupine herd leaves the coastal plain before winter, uh, later in summer, usually. Uh, But as the herd has increased in size, are seeing some of the porcupine herd remain uh, uh, north of the mountains even in winter
2: so uh, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening up there biologically say Fran while well, you're talking about the hot springs uh, I've hiked into a, the, the sublek and those uh, I could never find the hot I could always find a little bit of warm is there a place where you can find it real
4: hot? Uh, yeah, there's a hot spring uh,
2: uh, I hate to even divulge the
4: location oh, but then it's, then oh, no. No, 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 it's okay. It's <laughs> it's in the it's in the Oak Peel Lake River Valley uh, the north edge of the mountains. And it's truly hot. I I sampled it once while I was flying some muskox surveys and in, in the early 80s. We landed uh, airplane on skis in in April and it was probably ten below zero at the time we had we had skis with us and skied up from where we landed the airplane and uh, every you know out on the north slope at that time of the year, ten below zero, every instinct you have tells you whatever you do don't take off your warm clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but we, in spite of that, we peeled off our warm clothes and hopped into this little tiny uh, uh, depression in the soil where the water was pooled. It was probably only about five feet by five feet and scrunched down in there. And it was, uh, I think it was about 102 degrees. It was, it wow, was really,
2: perfect,
4: really nice. <laughs> but uh, there is another warm, uh, I guess I would call it a warm spring over by Red Hill at the west
2: end of the Salarochi Mountains. Yeah, that's the one and, I've uh, stuck my finger into. I hiked into it one time.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, I would call it a warm spring, but not a hot spring. But those are the only two that are warm uh, north of the divide in the Brooks Range. It's just, it's just a wonderful place. It has... All this uh, landscape and diversity and characteristics that that are uh, that are compressed into a relatively small area, and uh, then on top of it all, you have one of the largest herds in North America squeezing in there and giving birth to their calves. Um, it's it's quite a spectacular wildlife phenomenon. Uh, I wish more people could it personally because if they could um, I think more
1: people would con- be convinced that this place needs to be protected and kept. I've been I've been trying to talk Angie into a trip there but um, I think she's scared but I also don't have to convince her that it needs to be protected either
4: Yeah well that's a wonderful thing that many people do get it and don't and realize that they may not ever get there but they want to know is such a place that still exists and that it remain that way for those who come after us. That's what conservation is all about, yeah. is that principle that we don't destroy everything that that really was the birthplace for our species in the first place a uh, long, long, long time ago, and that we keep as much of it as we possibly can uh, for everyone to know where we where we came from as a species actually
1: Mm -hmm. now i'm looking at a map of so excuse me if i ask a dumb question right but i see this giant area called the national petroleum reserve Mm -hmm. quite a bit to the west yes why why would someone want to do something on the coastal plain when it looks like there's a there's a giant area elsewhere
4: yeah, well, the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska, was actually uh, established because of a, a previous war. Uh, uh, World War I was the first war that was fought where petroleum resources were critical to uh, became used in, in fighting wars. Uh, some of the first airplanes were used in World War I, for instance. Uh, So in 1923, President uh, Warren Harding uh, established the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. It's a 26-million-acre area. It's huge. And because uh, even though they hadn't uh, found commercial or or large deposits of oil there yet, uh, reports of oil seeps and, and early geological... Investigations along the Arctic coastline where these oil seeps were led geologists to believe that there's likely oil uh, in that region and that area was set aside at that time. But yeah, it's, um, and there's valuable wildlife habitat in in that National Petroleum Reserve as well. It's that, as you can see on your map, it's uh, very uh, long distance even more than 110 miles from the mountains to the coast. It's more like 150 miles from the mountains to the coast across parts of the National Petroleum Reserve. So it's a different landscape and a different uh, array of uh, space and wildlife habitat. But there certainly is some unique and special wildlife values there as well. And the oil industry has been expanding more and more to the west Uh, into the patrolling reserve since about uh, the late
2: 1980's. uh, Frank, can I ask a question? Uh, With all your years of biological research up on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, do you have any lessons learned about uh, getting out to that landscape and and doing uh, being on the ground that you might impart on listeners that might want to come up and uh, and uh, do some kind of act- activity on Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. What are some some uh, good lessons that you think you've learned working out there?
4: Well, one of the thoughts that popped into my head just off my t- off the top of my head, as you asked this, is uh, uh, in the course of my work up there, I often uh, working with. Uh, spend a lot of time working in small airplanes. And, uh, you know, we have to land and get fuel like everybody else. And uh, I don't know how many times i landed at Arctic Village airstrip. And uh, visitors to the refuge, some being guided by wilderness guides and river floating guides, uh, backpacking guides, were at the airstrip uh, as their planes were fueling or coming and going from trips in the arctic refuge and uh, i was always amazed at talking to people who had never been there before and they're on their way out of the refuge and they've been there for a week or 10 days or whatever and the glow on their faces and the uh, um the inspiration they had from being out in such a place, uh, was, was just evident when you walk up to them and start visiting and they were moved like never before. It was a life changing experience for people who had the opportunity or took the opportunity to visit that landscape transformational, I'd say, and life changing. And, um, that's what strikes me as much as anything, is, is that um, we need these big, vast, wild places to restore ourselves from the hectic landscape that we now live in, both physically and, of course, the digital world as well. Out there, you're isolated from much of that. You're able to reconnect to, to the real ancient earth from which we came. That's, uh, that's what I think the value of that, a place like that is. And the value of other wilderness areas as well. Thank goodness we have some wild places left in our country elsewhere. It's just that the, the refuge is of another scale compared to any other place that we set aside for conservation.
1: Well, the refuge and the Yukon Flats are right next to each other, correct? So... Between them, isn't it more like 30 million acres and yeah, the biggest, absolutely. the largest wilderness in the lower 48, I think is Death Valley, right? And then and Frank church and maybe the mm-hmm. Bob Marshall complex are the biggest ones So, mm-hmm. and combining them don't even get anywhere near the size of either one of those.
4: Yeah. And then in addition to that, if you take into consideration that Canada has set aside two national parks that border directly on the Arctic Refuge, and they have other protected lands to the south uh, within the range of the porcupine caribou herd. It's even greater. And uh, that's something I haven't mentioned, but when Lowell Sumner and, and George Collins, the two Park Service people that first looked at northeast Alaska for conservation, values, they very quickly understood what, well, how this area was special. And they originally recommended an Arctic International Wildlife Preserve. And uh, uh, they, they got it from the very beginning, and uh, both countries have taken actions to protect that area in varying degrees. Uh, so when you think about what is over on the Canadian side uh, that augments uh, the Arctic refuge and Yukon flats, it's, it's, it's very impressive. One of the, one of the last biggest pieces of wildlands in North America that, that, that actually have some conservation purposes laid on, on them. I, I've, I was fortunate to fly caribou surveys across the border into Canada from from the uh, winter ranges uh, in the Canadian Yukon territories and Northwest Territories and seen uh, some of that landscape that this big caribou herd ranges over. And uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. You can fly for hours and hours at 120 miles an hour and see nothing but unmarked land below you, marked only by this network of caribou trails that lead 400 miles, air miles, from the southernmost winter range to this narrow little strip between the mountains and the coast in the Arctic Refuge where they give birth to their calves. And um, these trails, some of them are worn down into the soil. Some of them are as deep as a couple of, two to three feet deep in the soil. There's places where they cross rocky areas that are, that they've, the trails are etched in the rock. The, the caribou, millions of caribou have walked those trails over thousands of years. And we're on the edge of the possibility of, Tearing this system up in its most sensitive location, the calving grounds. That's that's where we're at with this search for
3: addiction to oil. And oh, I'm so glad I'm on this call. That that is one of the most beautiful images. I mean, I'm I'm taking notes, obviously. But whew, thank you for that, sir.
2: You're welcome. You know, I know for myself, floating the conga cut. Uh, river one time we came there by caribou pass and for probably two miles along the river bank on both sides uh we came to where the porcupine herd had just crossed probably within a few days of when we were there and on both sides of the river at the high water mark there was a rope of caribou hair that extended probably two right. miles on either side that was four inches wide it was that hollow hair and uh, talk about a caribou barnyard smell. It, it was you could tell uh, it was an amazing crossing that we had just missed.
4: Yeah, they're molting their hair at that time of the year, especially especially the pregnant the females, because they they postpone the molting of their hair so that they're not tacked. Uh, uh, from a nutritional standpoint, they put priority to producing rich milk uh, immediately after they give birth, and they molt later after, after they've given birth let, so that they're not uh, trying to grow new hair at the same time that they're producing this, the, the maximum amount of rich milk. And uh, so you end up with, with uh, the hair Along uh, well, the rivers when they cross, it's uh, it's it's a remarkable system of how how these animals fit into the that landscape and and the uh, the challenges they face with insects
2: and predators and yeah and those rivers. pregnant cows are the last to shed their antlers as well, which of course caribou and reindeer the females have antlers many times as well.
4: Yeah, the young. Uh, Let's see, it's the the old bulls shed their antlers first in the fall after breeding. And young bulls will carry antlers as late as March. But the females, the only member of the deer family that have antlers, the females having antlers, is caribou. And they shed their antlers uh, within, usually within seven days after giving birth. So when you're out on the calving grounds after the caribou have left and you walk around and you find shed antlers scattered around on the tundra, uh, nearly all of them are cow antlers.
2: And was the You, it, you, know, you Franus, know when you're in
4: a calving grounds when you see all those cow antlers laying around.
2: Wasn't there a study done about, no oh, 12 years ago or so where uh, a uh, grad student uh, uh, dated carbon dated some of those antlers to find concentrations of where the cows historically had had shed, and even found antlers on the landscape that are over two thousand years old.
1: Wow!
4: yeah, that's uh, uh, that's true, and uh, I think there will continue to be more. Uh, more detailed information coming out from that study. I'm not sure it's even complete at this point. But yeah, uh, some interesting patterns uh, that are showing up that Illustrator establish how long uh, caribou have been using that landscape. Um, and it's, it's related to uh, also, the use of the landscape for calving is related to the, uh, the ice age. And, uh, if you get out on the coastal plain, uh, there's a stretch there that, uh, during the ice age, the water levels were lower in the Arctic ocean and, uh, animals were able to migrate around the glaciated ice fields of the Eastern Brooks range. And, um, uh, There's a narrow stretch of the original uh, unglaciated area that existed during the Ice Age that enabled them to migrate as they do today. Those that come out of Winter Range in Alaska, they always go northeast and go around the tall mountains of the Brooks Range, uh, blending with other migratory groups coming out of the Canadian Winter Ranges. And then go around the east end of the Brooks Range and onto the coastal plain, and uh, the northernmost part of the coastal plain was unglaciated, and uh, so it's, there's a possibility of finding very ancient antlers there, uh, from that go back to the Ice Age. Uh, a lot of fascinating things about a, a relatively simple landscape that's not loaded with of thousands of species like you know rainforest in, in,
1: uh, in the tropics. Well but I remember I remember when Hal and I were there with Barry Barry was showing us native sites that probably were from the mid 20th century, 1950 1960 area that they still may have been relatively nomadic um, hunter-gatherers. Or, or very close to that.
4: hmm Certainly. Yeah. There's places where you can find uh, rocks on the, in the tundra arranged in a circle, which were used to hold down skin uh, skin uh, like uh, tents stretched over willow branches. So kind of the, <laughs> the people of that time were probably the original designers of dome tents. That's how how they they traveled light, and um, uh, interestingly, though, even uh, even the 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 widespread um, it was you know you get into the ice age era and and uh, it was a time there was native people living uh, in the north uh, that date back at least. At least 12,000 years, and uh, but the first Native people that came into Alaska did not have dog teams at first, and uh, they existed without dogs. Dogs were dog travel was a relatively new means of human travel in the Arctic. Um, how they existed without dogs is uh, kind of a mystery. Dogs were essential in moving from place to place, following the caribou and other, other uh, food, food sources. So uh, There's still a lot of things we don't understand, and, and there's opportunity to continue to learn new things. Uh, one of the things that, speaking of uh, caribou, just, uh, oh gosh, it was just within probably four years ago. Some archaeologists, you know, a branch of archaeology has has been increasing, uh, looking under water for early sites of human existence. And archaeologists had discovered um, in Lake Huron, one of the Great Lakes, ni- under ninety feet of water, they found. Uh, uh, a uh, topographic feature that uh, was a ridge that once separated two lakes at, the, at, at a particular time. and they found rock, caribou fences on an isthmus between two lakes under 90 feet of water in Lake Huron, where native people, <laughs> Had set up rocks to funnel caribou through a, through a narrow isthmus where they could uh, kill caribou with spears and arrows. So there's a lot of fascinating <clears throat> there's a lot of fascinating things just about this. You one know, Fran.
2: Oh, uh, we existed. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Fran. I had the opportunity the uh, an archaeologist paid our way to float the okomala river and find archaeological sites and i remember on that river this is a river that flows into the arctic far to the west and Mm -hmm. um, there was still uh, the rock piles and they had willow sticks in the middle of the rock pile these old weathered willow sticks that would have held netting for either sheep drives or maybe possibly caribou as well and I just, and that's what's so neat about the Arctic. It's really a desert in many respects. It's uh, things are preserved, bone points. I've found uh, caribou antler, net needles, and, and, and point, uh, spear points uh, that are still on the landscape out there that haven't, anywhere else, they would have uh, rotted and gone away. But that stuff's still out there. It, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I was surprised by... Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No. Oh, you go ahead, friend.
4: Oh, I was just going to say, and to, and to uh, realize that, you know, us modern-day hunters with our uh, telescopic scopes and high-powered rifles and such, uh, to imagine humans uh, catching animals for food without such uh, powerful uh, and accurate... Uh, weaponry is is quite uh, quite impressive that they were able to um, make a living. Certainly, the density of people was much lower uh, then than than what we have today. But uh, nonetheless, they were, they were great hunters, no doubt.
3: I'll bet it was an incredible thing
2: we lost him again. <laughs> even for me, more so is being able to survive the winter with just a willow patch of sticks to keep a fire going. That, uh, it's just amazing.
1: Yeah. So if if people wanted to expose themselves to the Arctic, because, I mean, it seems pretty daunting, right? You look at a map, you're like, wow, that's a long ways away. Um, how How do I even... Welcome back, Hal. Um, how how do I? <laughs> Hal has been um, intermittently with us on this. Um, how how what are some of the easy ways someone could get indoctrinated and experience the landscape without having to be super extreme? Dropped off by float plane, two weeks by themselves.
2: Um. I guess I could throw out the closest proximity that I'm aware of, and correct me if I'm wrong. Fran is to drive the Dalton Highway, uh, what 360 miles north of Fairbanks, but at the Atahoon, or the, a lot of people pronounce it Atigan and I've I've heard it's a uh, nupiac word for the way we go down from Galbraith Lake. Uh, somebody could hike on the south side of the adigan gorge and just go in a mile and there's actually a wonderful waterfall feature about three miles in but you could stand on arctic national wildlife refuge and just get a taste of what that landscape is and see dull sheep and potentially muskox and caribou and other things as well wouldn't that be the easiest in your mind uh fran yeah,
4: that would be a good way to start. Uh, uh, for uh, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily require hiring a bush plane and and uh, you know getting fl- flown in and flown out and all that stuff. That's that would certainly be a start right there uh, uh, to get to get an ex- to get a feel for the land and also to build up your experience to possibly plan, uh, a second trip, uh, where you get, w- where you would be dropped off with an airplane to some more remote area than, than right ne- fairly close to the road. Uh, also, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I don't know how to say this, but, uh, people, there's a lot of different people in the world and there's some who, um, who uh, have the uh, adventurous spirit, even though they've never gone to the Arctic before, to study up, do some homework, do some reading, and plan their own trip. We've had people come independent of any wilderness guide uh, or anything else, and get on a mail plane and fly to Arctic Village and hike or ski across the refuge from Arctic Village to Caktovik, and get on another mail plane and fly back and not even hire a bush pilot. Uh, some of the early people that visited the refuge uh, used to do that. Uh, they used, it was a pretty common thing for people to just get on a mail plane and go across the refuge from south to north or north to south either way. Uh, that's another option that is out there anyway for
0: people to do. How, how, many, uh, how many stamps does it take to get out on a mail plane? <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, the price has gone up. <laughs> That's a good question, <laughs> given given the Postal Service uh, funding these days and all that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's the mail plane, uh, the costs of flying on the mail plane have gone up like everything else. Uh, uh, Barry, you probably know better than me uh, possibly what a round-trip ticket say from uh, up or a, a, a one way ticket say to Kaktovik would be but it's it's got to be between at least $400 probably I don't know exactly
2: Yeah,
4: price the is name. much higher than it used to be
0: more more than a couple stamps for sure <laughs> definitely
1: <laughs> so you could possibly pull it off $1000 round trip via mail plane
4: Oh, well, I, I wouldn't doubt it. Them. Yeah, but a quick I think call f- to, to some of the air carriers, you could find out what, yeah. what, what it would be. Uh, I just can't give you that number off the top of my head.
2: But I think people would find even the simple task of driving the Dalton Highway is a challenge unto itself. And make sure you have a rental car, for example, that you're even allowed to go up there because... Though I must say, the road is the best I've ever seen, it. and uh, but it is still challenging. And I know my pickup truck coming back uh, you you couldn't even guess the color it it was just a shade of grayish brown. So that's you know that's it it does take a toll.
4: Yeah, and it takes a lot of vigilance to uh, drive safely and. And uh, be careful about uh, the big trucks hauling on the road, um, and yep. uh, not and you know you shouldn't stop to get out and look at something where the, where you're right on a blind corner because if the two eighteen-wheelers are coming along, one going south and one going north, and your vehicle is not totally off the road, there could be uh, bad consequences.
1: You what? Know. Well, Well, I think just on the drive, we saw two or three moose plus a black bear on that trip on the drive up. Um, The drive, well, long and bumpy, was definitely an adventure and exciting in its own right.
4: Yeah, it's an adventure, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) One thing with those trucks,
2: um, I always pull over uh, when I'm on the the Dalton highway section and just stop because I don't want to crowd them at all. And you're going to find these truckers talk to each other. And word goes pretty quick that you're somebody that's friendly. And if you're not, uh, they'll, they'll get you on a payback either gravel on the windshield or kind of force you off the road. So just saying be courteous to the big trucks.
1: Bummer, bummer. Um, you have anything you want to add or I, um... Al, you've been in and out quite a bit.
3: I have. I was amazed. I, I don't know what's kicking me off. It's it's not my internet, but neither mind. I got I got a lot of it, but it was very perverse at times because somebody would be saying something perfect, and it would go pink. <laughs> 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 I want to know how far it is from Arctic Village to Cactivic.
4: Uh. You know, a lot of people ask me, how far is it from this point to that point? And um, I, I I hate to say it, but my experience is primarily from riding in um, bush airplanes. And I tend to think in terms of, of time rather than miles. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Uh, so, you know, from... Arctic Village to Kaktovik, if memory serves me right, it's about about 45 minutes to an hour uh, traveling at about 120 miles an hour. Well,
1: 90 and miles. That's,
2: <laughs> but if that's, that's in perfect conditions, too. And right, that, I guess absolutely. that's the big point uh, when I asked uh, Fran uh, takeaways from working up there that landscape isn't in a human timeline, and people get themselves in trouble when they're trying to compress it into a time frame that that meets their schedule, and so don't be pushing bush pilots to fly in bad weather, you know, it's time to play a game of cribbage and just wait it out.
4: Yeah, and if you, uh, if you, if you're flying up Alaska from lower 48 and you have airline reservations, it would be wise to give yourself a day or two uh, on either side uh, to cover you in the event that a pilot and the weather is such that you can't pick you up right on, on schedule to get you in back to Fairbanks in time to catch a flight down to the lower 48. It, it's wise to uh, uh, schedule your airline ticket. Uh, to give you some extra time in case you're stuck out
2: there for a while. What was the longest you were ever stuck up on the coastal plain?
4: Oh, there have been times when, uh, I, I haven't been stuck out on the ground so long, but there, were, there have been times where uh, mail planes, even with instrument uh, equipment, uh, could not fly into Kaktovic for a week because of coastal fog. That's the worst is, is coastal fog in the summertime. And uh, the fog is a, is a problem because it, it comes and goes unpredictably and can roll in from the coast uh, all the way to the Continental Divide up some of the river valleys within a half an hour's time. And so um, it's a unpredictable weather condition that that um, needs to be taken into consideration
2: when you're operating we had it uh we had it come in on this last trip up there a couple of weeks ago it looked like molasses pouring over the the hills coming up towards the mountains and it enveloped us for probably a day and a half mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
4: that's very that's fairly common actually
2: Hmm. You need well, a good seek outside tent to to, to sit it out.
1: Um, on our trip, we spent a lot of time with a fire <laughs> under a tarp, and then eventually, everyone started throwing willow and the seek outside cimarron, and said, "Let's get that stove going." So,
3: <laughs> I have yeah, a I've great already, photo of my son looking into that tent while y'all while we're drying out clothes.
4: Yeah, I've I've often advised people to to consider going to the Arctic on its terms rather than ours. In other words, its terms are unpredictability, uh, plan ahead, give yourself extra time because uh, the fog rules in this land and we don't. And uh, a lot of crazy things happen that uh, you could not, would not. Uh, think of when you're uh, traveling into uh, off the road from a road system, if you have to rely on, on an airplane, um, we need to go there under the conditions that exist rather than our own specifications. And I would add also that includes uh, We shouldn't expect bush pilots to land in places where people have never landed before because there's a growing proliferation of landing sites that ultimately changes the character of a place like the Arctic Refuge as well. One of the things I learned when I first came to Alaska was from a veteran. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service person, uh, a fellow named Dave Spencer, and he advised me when I was young and didn't know much about this, that what protects wildlife in their natural conditions more than anything else here in Alaska is the ease of human access to, the, to, to these remote places. If you build an airstrip in an area, they will fund. And as sensitive and subtle as things are in the Arctic, an airstrip in a place where there had never been an airstrip can change the character of an entire valley.
1: Well, I imagine it's like around here a little bit. Um, This year, our usage is up an incredible amount due to... um, Probably COVID and people not having anything else to do. Um, recent study going up into the basin outside. an outside, just about five miles away, um, in 2019, which seemed very busy, there was 33,000 cars. Um, this year, there was 47,000 during the month of July, so 50% growth in one year. However, there's been a lot of people that have been found, noticed, whatever, see a lot of tire tracks on the Tundra. And that Tundra just takes forever to grow back when people do it. So I signed on recently to a thing that has been circulating um, for Alpine Rangers and education um, as well because people don't realize just how sensitive that is. That Tundra, just because it looks like your Toyota Tundra can go rolling over it, um, without without being a big deal, doesn't mean that you should.
4: I agree hundred percent. It's, um, in my opinion, uh, I think it's a real uh, tragedy to see our tundra areas so marked up nowadays by all-terrain vehicles. Uh, those scars will be there until all-terrain vehicles go extinct. And beyond yeah and something is lost when you can't look across an arctic or tundra landscape without seeing a line or a scar and and I think Barry talked about it much earlier about how on the north side of the mountains where the mountains sweep down to the Arctic coast at least in the Arctic refuge It's essentially unscarred. That sweep of uh, landscape and varying mosaic of vegetative patterns going from the Arctic Ocean right up to the tallest peaks in the Brooks Range without a scar. As soon as you step out of the Arctic Refuge boundary, across the Canning River, there's oil... Exploration scars and seismic lines all over the place. And the last place that's relatively or essentially unscarred is the Arctic Refuge.
1: That's awesome.
4: It's the last. We got, got uh, to it. The environmental writer uh, is a real controversial character in and of himself, Edward Abbey, came up to the Arctic Refuge in 1983 with a a wilderness river guide and floated down the Conga Cut River, he wrote an article about his trip to the refuge, and he entitled it, The Last Pork Chop. (laughs) If you look at the map of the so-called 1002 coastal plain area that's being considered for oil development, it kind of looks like the shape of a pork chop. It's an interesting read. He was an interesting writer and uh, activist, I guess.
1: Bonkie Rich Gang.
0: Um. Man, I, I feel like that's a good place, a good place to leave, leave everybody off. Um, what, like, what actionable steps can people take right now? Can, is there? Is there anything that can be done? Is it just voices? You know, uh, writing in to our senators here at home to, you know, do we need to tweet? Donald Trump? Like, what, like, what what can be done before now and the end of the year to make sure that that maybe they don't do do something that seems pretty sure-handed that they're going to do?
4: Well, one thing I could I could uh, point to uh, is that there's been a campaign uh, quite successful in uh, encouraging the big banks in the U.S. and other banks around the world to. Uh, to establish a policy that they will not lend any money to oil companies who often need need cash to support their exploration activities. And uh, all of the big banks, the really big banks in the U.S., except one, have issued a policy where they will not fund Oil exploration in the Arctic Refuge, and uh, that goes. Uh, and internationally, it, it includes Lloyd's of London, uh, Barclays, uh, uh, banks of Australia, Scotland, uh, and then in the U.S., uh, 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 Citibank. Um, JP Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, Wells Fargo have all have all pledged they would not lend money for drilling in the refuge. There's still one big bank in the U.S. that has not taken that uh, made that policy, and that's the Bank of America. And uh, conservationists, environmentalists, whatever you want to call them, are uh, are uh, contacting that bank and encouraging them to also join with all the other banks in this, in this boycott of funding in the uh, oil development in the Arctic. It's another way to possibly hold the line on this place that is hanging by the thinnest of threads at this moment. So if any of you have a, a credit card account with Bank of America, uh, that's that's one thing you can do is write to the bank and encourage them to take that stand.
0: Cool. Yeah. Send them, send them a message.
4: Send them a message. It's our, it's, uh, we still have our uh, freedom of speech yet, I believe. And, and, uh, <laughs> we should speak up, but, uh, it never hurts to contact your Senator and Congressman, uh, because, uh, we've got election coming up and, and there may be changes in the composition of Congress that would be more favorable to, to saving the refuge. It's, uh, the refuge has existed under threats for the last 40 years or more, and uh, it's survived so far. And with a little bit of hope, luck, maybe it will survive on into the future for those who come after us. We've got to hope so anyway.
0: Awesome, friend. Well, friend, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for going over all this with us. Uh, Barry, oh. thanks for calling in. Hal, thanks for being here.
3: Dennis, thanks for your patience and letting me in 50 times. <laughs> yeah, it's all good.
0: <laughs> well,
4: thanks, thanks for the opportunity to visit with you guys. I appreciate it. It was fun.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. I know. I know. I learned a ton, and, and hopefully, we get to see you in Alaska sometime. Get a little tour.
2: Absolutely.
1: I'm kind yep. of feeling the need for. I'm feeling the need for the trip on the Kaga Cut.
2: Oh, that's a good one. Go in at Drain Creek and go
0: on down. I won't in on that.
1: Okay, let's talk about it offline.
0: <laughs> All right. Next podcast we'll do in person. How's that sound? Yeah. Very soon. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks very much. Sounds hey, like hey, a hey, good thanks
3: there. again, everybody. Brad, that you. was an awesome interview, man. I, I I took about a million notes. Great, well, it's a springboard for future uh, maybe topics. So
2: there Can't you go. wait.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yeah. Adios. Yep. Adios. Bye.